Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we're fortunate to have Jason Tuttle, uh, principal founder at Nova Capital Partners, so a little bit of a divergence, although I don't think it's that far off course for us. So uh, Nova Capital Partners is a real estate investment firm. Um, they've been operating since 2011. Um, they're in the process of raising their very first fund. Um, they've been doing uh, kind of one-off investments where they've identified a piece of property, raise the money, go out, purchase the property, um, and then manage that piece of property as an LLC for their for their investors in that project. Um, they started the concept of raising a fund a couple years ago and finally went out and started um, started it this year, about to close it somehow, sometime here in 2019. So fun conversation, kind of in that same space. What's it like to open up a fund? Um, what's their strategy? How do they see it? How do they execute? What's it like starting a business? I mean, obviously started a business in 2011, a real estate business in 2011. So just a good back and forth discussion with Jason, um, somebody I think we'll see and hear more about within the Charlotte community over the course of the next 5, 10, 20 years. Um, Their funds got an interesting twist on it, and I think we can all learn a lot from the way that they're approaching and and executing on a deal-by-deal basis. So certainly hope you enjoy listening to another edition of the Charlotte Angel Connection. So Jason, welcome to the show today. Thanks for thanks for carving out some time to do this. I'm pretty excited about diving into commercial real estate today. It's awesome. It's gonna so, be a fun deep deep dive. Deep dive into commercial real estate across the Carolinas and beyond. Um, so um, my listeners know I usually start off with a softball question um, just to get the conversation flowing a little bit. Um, so I've known you for a number of years now through a couple of different things, but um, the listeners may not. So can you give us just a quick two to three minute breakdown of who in the world is Jason Tuttle? Sure. Um, grew up in Rock Hill. Um, my dad has an MBA and a PhD in real estate. So <clears throat> to say I grew up in real estate is an understatement. Um, Worked for him for one summer in high school and swore I would never do that again. Went to school in Chapel Hill, graduated, went to work for my dad, uh, worked for him for 11 years. Um, in the midst of the downturn, um, decided I needed to find another way to generate revenue. So I started my own company with my roommate at Carolina, and uh, we started Nova Capital Partners in 2011. Um, and we've been buying individual real estate assets for the last eight years until 2019 when we launched uh, the two funds that we've started to buy assets together in a pooled fund. Okay. So, um, man, that's a lot for us to touch base on real quick. Um, So you worked for the family business for a number of years, 2011, real estate slowed down and everything else. You kind of of spun out. In 2011, what led you to believe that starting a real estate entity was the right thing to go do, right? (laughs) Well... I don't know that we thought it was the right thing to do. It was more desperation. Yeah, both of us were yeah. both of us were suffering from uh, the results of the recession, trying to figure out how do we how do we make money in the new normal. And we didn't know then how smart we were starting a value real estate business in 2011. It was brilliant. We just 
didn't know that we were being brilliant, but we were buying distressed properties. And we got to see over the next, I mean, the last eight years, riding that curve all the way up. It's been really great. Um, so while I was, it was painful to leave the family business and uh, some of the lessons learned there are, were important, um, it was super important to get us to where we are now. We're way better off now. What was the original vision of the company in 2011? Was it to ba- buy, um, value almost kind of to a certain extent distressed assets? Um, and if so, when you left, did you already have a target in mind or did you already have a piece of property? Yes. Yeah, so mostly for my dad, I was managing our development projects. Okay. So uh, most of what my dad's done over time is developed ground up stuff, um, mostly in Rock Hill, some in Fort Mill, um, everything from office to retail. Uh, right now he's doing the largest deal he's ever done, a huge mixed use redevelopment in the old mill in downtown Rock Hill. Okay. Yeah. Um, So what Andy and I do, my partner is Andy English. He's in Raleigh, and I'm here. Um, We buy buy existing assets. My dad never really did that. So it's really different than what he did. Um, So we had to learn a whole kind of a whole new set of skills. But we did have a deal when we started. So Andy and I were working on a, a handful of things together over the three or four years before 2011, trying to see if it would work, just testing some things out. Um... Everything from we considered buying an operating daycare to uh, little real estate deals here and there, none of which really panned out until we found this little shopping center on Independence um, that we bought from a, an owner that wasn't doing a very good job, honestly, and it had a, a, a non-recourse loan attached to it. And what was special about that for us was that we had literally no money. And so we couldn't have guaranteed a normal bank loan if we wanted to, because we didn't have any liquidity. So acquiring or uh, assuming the non-recourse loan was really great for us. Um, So we assumed that loan and bought that property and operated it. And for uh, the first five years of our business, it was the best returning deal that we had in terms of annual cash on cash return. And we joked that, um, the first, the first deal was going to be our best deal. We were never going to get one better than that first one. Like we, <laughs> we hit the first one out of the park and now we're just going to hit singles from now on, uh, which what didn't end up being true, but, um, that was a great little deal. We still own it. Um, Do you? <clears throat> yeah, it's kind of a mess now. DOT has told us that they're going to build a road through it. Okay. Uh, so that's been kind of a problem, but we're sorting it out. Yeah. So, um, that's interesting. So, um, you go from, um, you bought that together, mm-hmm. um, no investor money. We did raise money from investors. I mean, we, did. we didn't have any money. Okay. So we raised, uh, I believe in that deal, we raised about $850,000. Okay. Uh, we assumed a loan that was in place that was part of a commercial mortgage-backed security, CMBS loan. It was really complicated. Um, just part of why nobody wanted to buy it was because assuming this loan was a ton of brain damage. Yeah. Um, so we bought it and... Um, the first two weeks that we owned it, we had to evict a laundromat, and um, it was crazy. The police were in the parking lot, and it was it was crazy. But it was like welcome, welcome to the big leagues. Like yeah. you're here now. So um, immediately cash positive, or it took a while yep. to get there. Yeah, we were immediately cash positive, and every deal we've done, uh, the first hurdle that we want to cross is. <clears throat> Making sure that our our cash on cash return of the investors is at least ten percent cash on cash annually. So mm-hmm. if somebody invests a hundred thousand dollars, they're going to get at least ten thousand dollars a year from us in cash, yeah. not just in appreciation, but in cash. So um, 
that's always our first hurdle. Every deal we've done has had that, and um, that's how we've analyzed deals from the at least from the beginning. Okay. Um, what were you um, What were you initially trying to build? Um, was it a property property entity, or did you know that the goal was to get out there and create the track record so that you could do what you're doing now, which is raise a fund, um, or were Maybe as you stated earlier, were you just trying to survive? Yeah, certainly in the beginning we were just trying to survive and find deals that we could make money at. Um, but I do think that the fund idea has been in our, in, at least in the back of our minds for the last five or six years. It's just taken a long time for it to kind of percolate. And the reason I say that is because we created the fund to address a number of the problems that we see in the real estate industry, mm-hmm. particularly the real estate investment industry and particularly in the real estate fund industry. And so we really created this to solve a lot of our own problems. And we knew that if we were solving our own problems, other people had those probably had those problems too. And it's really been received well, both by our existing investors. Um, I think Andy and I had done about <clears throat> maybe 10 or 12 deals um, over our first eight years. So from 2011 to 2019, when you launched the fund, you'd done 10 to 12 deals. That's right. And so those deals probably had, I don't know, maybe 75 or 80 investors. Okay. And many of those, and we have, I don't know, a handful of people that invest in every deal that we've done. Yep. And then some that have done one here or there. But, so we had a lot of investors. Um, and I would say the vast majority, of them, probably 90% of our existing investors have now invested in the fund. Okay. And so they bought into it too. They said, okay, you're right. All these are problems. And so one of the problems that we saw, we owned a building on Monroe Road where the common market is now. And we bought it uh, from a pretty distressed seller. He was in kind of a weird situation and uh, we capitalized on the opportunity. We bought it really cheap. Um, we worked really hard to lease it. Um, we found some really good tenants like Iron Tribe and um, common market that made it look sexy. And then the neighborhood turned and became Oakhurst. And that was out of our control. We didn't see it coming. It was, we got lucky, but that deal was the perfect example of all the stars aligning of buying it at the right price, working hard at it, and then getting lucky. Yeah. Um, so when we sold that property. It was about a 320% return to our investors. Um, and they're like, hey, this is great. We love all this cash, but what are we supposed to do with it now? We we give you this money so we can get this this return and it can grow, but now you're giving it back to us. What, what are we supposed to do with it now? Um, we said, we're just going to have to wait till we have another deal. And so uh, that was really when we started thinking, okay, we've got to figure out a better way that people can compound their gains, either their cash flow gains uh, that we return every year or when we sell things that those can continue to roll forward and not just be these terminal events that then people have to pay taxes on and figure out what's next. Um, how'd you find your first deal? Um, this shopping mall. How do we find our first deal? I don't, I think it was listed on the market. I think a broker had it listed okay. and we, I can't remember now who it was even. Um, How do you find them now? Same thing? Yeah, I mean... Because, I mean, again, you'll go back, you know, you're not buying the piece of real estate uptown, right? That's not y'all's model that there's a sign out front you drop by it every day. Right. Um, You're finding great little hidden assets. Right. But they're hidden. Right. Well, most of the stuff we've bought over time was, was listed by a broker at one point or another. Um, we have begun, because of the reputation that we've built, buying 
unloved assets, we're starting to get phone calls. People are hearing about us. They know of our uh, track record and our integrity and in getting deals closed and doing what we say we're going to do. Um, so we're starting to get those phone calls. But by and large, they're properties that have hit the market. I mean, our most our, our next acquisition is a huge 750,000 square foot office um, park in Jacksonville, Florida. And the story there was the maintenance guys that work at my office park here on Albemarle Road uh, used to work at that property. And they came into my office one day and said, hey, Jason, I think the Jacksonville guys are getting ready to sell their property. You should call them. So we called them. And sure enough, they had just listed it. So we still had to go through the whole process, which was aggravating. But nonetheless, they knew that we were the most likely guys to buy it because it's a sister property to our big office park here in Charlotte. Um, So that was kind of a weird way, you know, that somebody just called us. Um, Sometimes a property will be listed and um, we'll start talking to the sellers. I mean, part of our secret sauce is that we want to engage directly with the seller as soon as possible and not talk through brokers. Um, And so my business partner was was talking directly to the sellers of this one deal. And they're like, well, we put these two buildings on the market because they were the best looking, but they're actually part of a 14 building portfolio. But you wouldn't want that other stuff. It's a bunch of little mom and pop flex spaces and we all said well actually we like that stuff a lot better than the pretty stuff yeah so then the two building portfolio became a 14 building portfolio and so even though it was listed it wasn't listed as that big and so um it's really just being engaged and being uh very involved in the process from the beginning to the end um in and let me say this too, like we, we do also use some technology tools to help us find deals. Yeah. There's some software systems that we've used um, or that we do use to help identify, for example, um, if we wanted to find um, industrial buildings in Southwest Charlotte with loans expiring in the next 18 months, we have a way to find those. Um, so that's a way to find deals as well. But our pipeline is so full right now, we haven't had to use it much lately, but uh, mostly it's it's through just the network and word of mouth that we find stuff. In an Amazon-dominated world where every retailer is going out of business, um, why are you buying commercial real estate? Well, it's a loaded question. Yeah, well, I mean, it comes in. There's a lot of different directions to take that. So, we are buying a lot of retail property. Um, retail properties are very unloved right now, which we think that that presents opportunities. But you have to be careful. You have to know what the Amazon effect may be. And so we've learned lots of things about that. For example, um, we know that lower income um, demographics aren't as affected by the Amazon effect. They still want to walk into Family Dollar. They still want to walk into cons. They still want to walk into Hamricks to buy the things. They They don't have the luxury of having them shipped or paying the annual membership or whatever. So we're typically buying properties that are in those kinds of demographics or that have anchors um, that are less about a physical product and more about a service. So we're buying a property in New Bern, uh, North Carolina right now, where the primary tenant is the local hospital. Yeah. It's a retail property, but the tenant is the local hospital. That's really interesting. They're not going to be upset by Amazon. Yeah. Um, another property we're working on has got a planet. Uh, that one also has a planet fitness. Like planet fitness is not going to be upset by Amazon. They yeah. have a good business model. And yeah. so Newburn, um, Newburn is, is famous for a couple of different things, but it's also famous for being my hometown. 
Um, there so, we go. See, it um, all comes back. Yeah. All comes back to you, Wayne. Yeah, I've worked out of that Planet Fitness before. It's a great <laughs> piece of property that you're purchasing. That's great. That's great. <laughs> That's great. Um, so yeah, so we we have owned retail over time. We sold some. Um, we still own the retail and independence. Uh, we're buying it now in Hickory and Newburn. Uh, we did a real deep dive on a, a big retail deal in, in North Charleston that we really liked, but the sellers weren't forthcoming with the information, so we had to call that one off. But that's um, your. Um, so I've known you for a while, and I know a little bit about that deal, right? <clears throat> um, from a credibility perspective, that's probably one of your biggest credibility factors that you were as far down that deal as you were with with your own investors. Um, and then backed out of it because it wasn't right. So talk about how that, as much as you can or want to, sure. about how that went down. I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a um, like a better term, it's a really good story. It is. Yeah, it, it's a great story. And we, we loved that deal um, somewhat because my partner and I just wanted a reason to have to go to Charleston regularly. But um, <clears throat> it's in North Charleston, which is certainly the working class part of town yeah. uh, near the Boeing plant, near the airport. Um we still actually love that deal. Uh, I think it's still on the market. Um, so we went under contract on that deal and uh, had most of the money raised, had a loan commitment ready to close. Um, but there are several factors at play. Some of them are really complicated about things that the sellers were communicating that we just couldn't reconcile, both in their numbers um, and in some of the tenant information. Um, I don't really want to go into too much detail about yeah. the tenant stuff there, but. Uh, there was one particular tenant we were uncomfortable with, um, just their credit and the landlord or the seller had promised us a bunch of information, which they never came forward with. And so we had to find it on our own. We found it out. We were right. Our, our hunch was right. That tenant felt sick. And so, um, so we backed out of it, sent all the money back to the investors and said, I'm sorry that we sat on your money for whatever, 90 days, but we did. We felt like it was better to give it back to you than to close a deal that may get sick. And and really, if we had closed that deal, we probably all would have made a bunch of money for a few years. Yeah. Um, we just were looking. We're we're long term hold guys. We don't we don't buy stuff and fix it up and flip it. We don't often. We've only sold two properties ever um, as a partnership, and um, we typically like to buy and hold. And so if we see some kind of systemic problem with a deal that makes us uncomfortable, we're going to pull out. Yeah. Um, hardest decision you ever made pull it out, pull it out of it or no business decision? Um, oh yeah, it was super hard. I mean, it, it, it was, uh, it was gut wrenching in a lot of way. And we, we'd spent a lot of money on that deal yeah. in due diligence, um, which we just had to absorb personally. Um, but, um, yeah, it was tough. It was really tough. It's a good deal. It's yeah. a great piece of property, and we loved it. We loved the neighborhood, and what's happening in that part of town feels a lot like our investments in East Charlotte. Like, East Charlotte feels a lot like North Charleston does, yeah. and uh, we loved all those dynamics. It was just we were nervous about having this really giant 60,000-foot hole in the property that would have just totally sunk it. Yeah. So. Um. So you pull out of the deal, you call investors, you send them a note. What oh, we do? called them. You yeah. called them. So you called the first one and you got to be sweating bullets. God, yeah. I'm going to hate it. What was the response? Yeah. My partner and I split up the phone calls because we, we both kind of have our own pools of investors that we've, we've 
raise money from over time. And there was one in particular I was nervous about because he'd already told me that he had to liquidate some things to generate the cash to invest in this. Yeah. So I knew, I mean, he had said to me, now you're sure you're going to close this, right? Cause I don't want to go sell these equities and have this tax gain. And so I called him and I said, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but we've decided to pull the plug on this deal. He says the best decision you've ever made. And he never, no, not a single investor gave us any negative feedback about our decision to, to punt. And I, I was surprised about that. I thought at least some of them would be pissed about it, but, um, I think they all knew that we were just being protective. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, there was no reason to do that other than protecting them and us from what we thought was inevitable. What, um, you talked a little bit about it earlier, um, you know, making the purchase, what, um, part of his luck, uh, what makes the, what makes a purchase successful in y'all's view, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that for us, um, you got your cash on cash <clears throat> minimum that you're looking for. Yeah. I mean, what, what makes it work is what you pay for it. I mean, it, that's really all that matters. What do you, what do you pay going in? I mean, what price are you buying it at? And, uh, that can, that can, fix a lot of problems. So our property in Jacksonville we're buying, we're buying for $42 a square foot. And you don't have to know much about real estate to know that's pretty freaking cheap. Um, so that can solve a lot of problems. But obviously, if you're buying it at that price, it's probably got some problems. Yeah. Um, but we figure all that out. I mean, we think in our due diligence process, which is extensive, and we use lots of third-party consultants to, to provide us information. But at the end of the day, we're doing all the underwriting ourselves. Uh, we're securing the bank loans ourselves and, um, it's just a lot of work. And so we're digging deep into the specific details of tenants leases and we don't take anybody's word for granted. If a broker or seller sends us, uh, a pro forma or a P and L or a rent roll, like we still go back and check behind them, make sure that it's accurate. Um, it's called lease scrubs. We scrub all the leases to pull the necessary information out, what their rate is, what their term is, just to confirm that it's right. Because, I mean, some people just make mistakes and some people are just liars. Yeah. And so um, I think that we've learned uh, not to trust what other people give us, to trust our own staff and our own instincts and skills. Um, but buying at the right price is the first thing. Um, and then we have to figure out how certain is the income stream. And that was the problem with the Charleston deal. Yeah. We felt like that the income stream was uncertain. And, um, but so the, the property we're buying in Jacksonville, uh, it's only 60% occupied, which, uh, I'm a glass half full guy. So I'm like, that's an incredible opportunity to crush it. Yeah. Um, and but it's, it's still going to meet your minimum at 60%. Right. Capacity. At 42 bucks a foot. Yeah. That's what makes it cook. Yeah. Right. But, um, but half of the tenants are government entities. Yeah. And so a lot of people don't want to own properties with government tenants because they're super high maintenance, but they always pay their rent. I mean, of all the tenants that you worry about paying the rent, government's not one of them. Yeah. You're going to get that check every month. And, but they do come with a ton of brain damage. Um, and so all the deals we do have, a lot of brain damage. And so we have to hire staff that's willing to suffer through the brain damage to make sure that we get those checks every month. So the first thing is what price are we buying it at? Second thing is what's the certainty of the income stream? Yeah. Um, and then just 
then we kind of loosely think about what does the future look like. And so um, most real estate guys will quote an uh, internal rate of return in IRR, which presumes you pay a certain price on day zero, there's some income stream, and then at the end of the term, you're selling it for some number. Um, and we don't really quote IRRs because we don't think we can predict what you can sell something for in the future. Um, we think it's uh, kind of disingenuous to think you can do that, and we don't want to lead our investors on to think we know what the future is going to be because we certainly don't. And we also don't know if we're going to hold something for five years or 25 years. Yeah. And so we don't really quote IRRs. We just say, look, we can get you at least 10% annual cash on cash return. Um, we will sell it at some point or redevelop it, and there will be some exit. We don't know what it'll be, but it's going to be awesome. So, um, so we don't. So when we think about the future, we think about what are the development trends. Like our properties in East Charlotte. I mean, we we have no idea how long it's going to take for Eastland Mall across the street to develop. I mean, it's going to take a long time. Yeah. But it's going to happen eventually, and it's going to be really good for our property. Um, our properties on Independence, like the rest of the Independence widening, is going to happen. It's going to hurt for a little while. But it's going to be great. Like, I think it's going to be really good for us long term. It's going to give us more visibility, more access. Um, so you just have to think through, if you're a long-term owner, those kinds of trends, you're not worried about timing the market. So we, And so like on our, our Monroe Road deal, um, we got lucky that yeah. that neighborhood turned faster than we thought. We had no idea we would sell that property so fast. But, um, but we leased three spaces in one week. We were at hundred percent lease. And I called my partner and said, I think we should sell it. So how do you know? I was like, I don't know. Let's how many, if we sold it, how many years worth of cash flow would that equal? So we ran the numbers and it was about 11 years worth of cash flow distributions to investors is what they would get in a terminal sale. Yeah. We're like, okay, that's a pretty good hurdle. Good. We'll give you 10 years worth of cash flow yeah. next month. And, uh, everybody loved it except that they didn't have a place to then reinvest that money. Yeah. What, um, in a world full of cash, where uh, the U.S. Treasury yesterday, I hadn't had a chance to look at it, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yesterday, I think, closed at 1.56. Um, <clears throat> it's August 23, 2019, for reference. Um, how are y'all just not in a war, like in this hugely competitive world where you're able to buy it for $42 a square foot, right? I mean, how how are there not a gazillion Jason Tuttles out there trying to do the same thing, bidding up the price of the asset so that it's a, at the end of the day, it's not worth it anymore? Um, well, most of the kinds of deals we do, other people don't want to mess with because they're just a lot of work. Um, they're more work than if you were to buy a fully occupied Harris Teeter shopping center yeah. where the tenants are known quantities. They're all high credit tenants. They're all, you know, paying the rent every month and you don't have to do much to it. Um, that's more like a commodity and those commodities are bidding up like crazy. If you look at apartment sales, uh, grocery anchored retail stuff, um, class a retail, I mean, the class a office, even like the new, uh, transaction we heard about a couple days ago, the new bank of America tower, all-time record in Charlotte real estate, 430-something million dollars. Um, they're commodities, and they're traded like that. The deals we do aren't commodities because it's it's just a lot to figure out. It's a lot of brain damage. And so when you've got 60% occupancy or 70% occupancy, you have to have lenders that are willing to come alongside you in that. If you've got um, 
you know, expiring leases that are sooner than you'd like to see, you got to have a plan for how you're going to deal with that. So I think that, that for us, the reason we've been able to close deals and continue these, uh, what we're now calling value real estate at scale is what the fund is about. Um, is we've just we've got a reputation that we can close deals, and that's really the most important thing. Um, you can pay twenty million dollars for a deal, or you can pay twenty five million dollars for a deal. But the twenty million dollar guy, you're certain he's going to close because he's got a bank letter in his hand, he's got money in the bank. The twenty five million dollar guy is an investor from New York who's just kicking the tires. They're going to pick the twenty million dollar guy because of certainty of close. You don't want to waste a bunch of time with a with a tire kicker. We're just not tire kickers. We're we're closers. Once you're ready, you're. That's right. You're going. That's right. It's very, very rare for us to have something under contract we don't close. So the only time that's happened was is twice, and they were both when the sellers misrepresented information. So when we go under contract, we're going to close. Yeah. Um, so you're pivoting the business model, right? So you used to identify, um, well, how did it used to work? You identified a piece of property, <clears throat> you did some due diligence, kind of loose due diligence, and then you said, hey, this is going to sing. Let's go raise some money. Exactly. And um, so that, that presented some problems that we found. So that's exactly right. So we'd find a piece of property or find a deal. Um, we'd do some due diligence. We'd talk to our bank a little bit. If everything seemed like it was lining up, then we'd have to go raise money. But usually we had to do it really fast yeah. because we were closing pretty quickly. Um, so that, that presents some problems. I mean, it, it shows some weakness to the seller if they were to find out about that, that you don't have money in the bank ready to close. Um, and if you can't raise the money, then it also poses a problem. Yeah. And so we feel like that the fund model allows us to come in and negotiate better deals because we've got so much financial strength behind us. And so sellers care about, can you close? How quickly can you close? Um, and how certain is all that? And so with the fund, those things are much stronger than they were in a deal by deal basis. So that's why we pivoted from doing individual deal by deal or one of the reasons why we pivoted. Yeah. So, um, the podcast has talked to, um, or on the podcast, we've talked to a number of different, you know, angel groups, angel investors, whatever. Is it a committed fund? So are people giving you the money today or is it a callable fund where you're saying, Hey, we need this, we need this, we need this. No, it's a committed fund. So we'll close, we'll have a certain date every year that we'll close the round of funding. So we'll take in new investments every year and sometimes even twice a year, depending on our deal flow. Um, so we're closing this current round, um, probably in the next two to four weeks. And so, um, but it is a committed fund. When people commit the dollars, we send them all the documents for signature DocuSign and then wiring instructions and they wire us the money. So, um, but at this point we've got four deals, uh, one deal that's closed and three more that are closing. So all the money that we will raise in this first round uh, is already committed. Yeah. So talk about the fund for a little bit. How's it going to work? Um, it is not a um, it is not a self liquidating fund that right. will you will buy four properties in and you'll hold those properties and when they sell then you return capital to your investors. Right. Um, how does the fund how's the how's the fund going to work? How are you going right. to bring on new investors on a year by year basis? Yep. So uh, well, I'll, let me just say first the reason why we're not doing that not doing a closed end fund like that is because. We've actually bought a bunch of deals from funds that were closing that had to sell because they had a mandate to close it in five five years or seven years or whatever. 
So we think that that creates negative incentives to buy at the right price in the right time and sell at the right price in the right time. Um, but the way the fund works is um, typically a real estate fund has some kind of closed-in timeline, which I just said we don't have. We hope that this fund will outlive us. That's our goal. Um, instead of most funds also do like what's, typic, what's typical is a 2 and 20 structure, a 2% management fee and a 20% uh, Split of profits, yep. uh, performance fee, some people call it, uh, promote, some people call it. Uh, we're not doing any kind of asset management fee. We think that that, again, creates a, a disincentive to invest money. So if we raise $30 million and we're charging 2% a year on that, we can live pretty comfortably on 2% fees and not ever invest the, the capital. Now, people would get mad and yeah. take their money back. You would assume so. But... Regardless, uh, we're not charging any kind of management fee. It's just a 25% performance. So uh, we split all the deals uh, with the investors 75-25. They get 75% of the cash flow. They get 75% of the sale proceeds. And we get 25%. It's it's really simple. Uh, there's no complicated waterfalls, callbacks, uh, which you see in a lot of funds, of any of that kind of stuff. It's just straight 75-25. Where... Um where does that stand in the industry? Is it unique? Are the other people doing it in Dallas and Portland and other places? Or, um, I mean, how does it fit in the world of commercial real estate for investors, right? Well, we haven't seen one like this. And our fund administrator has told us that they haven't seen one like this. Um, we actually based a lot of our structure around um, a large family fund in North Carolina. Uh, the patriarch made fortunes. I don't know, three generations ago. Okay. And now three generations later, it's worth far more than what they started with, which is super rare. Yeah. And what they did was uh, the same kind of thing. Every, once a year, all the family members would come together and they could trade shares back and forth and say, okay, well, I'll buy yours for this. And they were buying companies and buying real estate. And we just really liked the perpetual nation of that notion of that. Um, but also that people can trade in and out more easily. You kind of generate this secondary market for the investment shares, uh, which we hope and expect and will encourage to develop. Um, technically, if you want to get your money back out of our fund, there's a more practical or a more technical way that you get it back. But uh, we do hope that that secondary share market will develop, that people can buy in and out um, to get liquidity. But you'll continue to grow it through new investors as well. That's right. right. So every year we'll be, so once a year we'll do a full valuation of the whole portfolio. <clears throat> determine what the new asset value is. So if we start with, we currently have $90 million worth of deals under contract um, and that we'll close in this first round. And so in a year, if that's worth whatever, $100 million, $110 million, that'll be our new starting point. So we raise next year's round, it'll be at a new valuation. So that protects the current investors and their current investment, but gives people a real clear idea of what they're investing in. Um, but we have not seen one... Um, and nobody else that we've talked to has said they've seen one that was both open-ended, uh, didn't have a management fee, uh, was focused on value real estate, uh, and that, allowed, that gave you this opportunity to reinvest your dividends. That's, that's really powerful, we think. Most of our investors that are investing a million, two million, three million dollars, they don't, they don't need cash flow every yeah. year. They've got cash flow from somewhere else. They want this money working and compounding. And so uh, that's one of the main reasons we created the fund the way that we did is so that people's that 10%, 12%, 14% annual cash on cash return can just compound and keep growing. 
So the pricing mechanism of that is they'll buy it at the year end. Um, so cash flows received throughout the year, and then they'll buy or they'll buy kind of how will the, uh, the cash flow of that work? Jason? Right. So the way it'll work is that uh, once a year, we'll make the determination of what the, the distribution will be for that year. Okay. And then um, everybody has already made the election. Are we going to take that as a distribution mm-hmm. and you give me a check or yeah. are we going to reinvest that as our into our account. And so then, so then at the end of the year, we make that, that determination and then there'll be, that will be reinvested at that new asset value. So then you don't make monthly distributions. No, you hold the money through the That's year right. to support the portfolio as That's needed right. if you're going to yep. do something else. And because and it's just that. with, with as many investors we have and it's as, cleaner, it's cleaner. Yeah. It's, it's just a lot of, there's just a lot of admin that goes into making a distribution. And so, um, our fund administrators, as well as our, Fund attorneys have just encouraged us that once a year is probably appropriate. Um, so, uh, ten years into a period of economic growth, um, you're raising a fund to go out and buy real estate. Um, traditionally, that's been probably not a strong selling point. Yep. Um, but you're perfectly comfortable with it for, I would assume, a couple different reasons. One being, you've got a big bucket of cash to go out and buy stuff if and when the downturn happens, and the other ones you're just buying unloved assets anyways that probably um, are already at a discount regardless of whether or not there's a recession around the corner. That's right. So, yeah, exactly. So I think if we were if we were in a downturn right now, uh, we'd be raising $100 million. Yeah. Um, but we're not. So we're raising $30 million. And so, uh, but you're right. I mean, I think that we're able to identify deals that have opportunity. And so typically the almost every deal we've done has some backstory of why the seller is selling for a reason that's outside the deal. So one deal, the seller had a hard money lender on another deal that he had to pay off. So he had to sell property A to pay off the lender on property B. We got it at a super cheap price. Another one, a fund was closing. They had to sell it. They didn't have a choice. So we got a really good price on it. Uh, One of the deals we're buying now, the seller is being indicted on securities fraud. So the bank is requiring him to sell everything. It's kind of a disaster. Um, so we've gotten really good at finding these quirky deals that have these strange tangential stories outside of the deal. So the deal is actually healthy. It's just the seller is unhealthy for one reason or another. So um, I can tell that story of every deal that we've done. It's yeah. pretty crazy. Um, so it's an LLC structure, I'm assuming, the new fund kind of. Story. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah it's a, it's, yeah, that's right. Basically. So it's a private deal run by Jason Tuttle in Charlotte and John English. Andy English. Andy English. John Andrew English. He okay. goes by Andy. That's so, right. Okay. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> in, in Raleigh. Right. Um, within the last 10 years, we've had a couple private things kind of blow up in people's face. We got a, um, a gentleman in New York by the name of Bernie Madoff. Yep. Um, we've got a gentleman here in Charlotte. We'll just kind of leave that alone. Yep. Um, how much pushback do you get on the illiquid? You're raising an LLC to go do what? Yeah, we uh, we've had some interesting conversations. Um, there's a couple of those uh, sponsors, let's say, that uh, I would love to pursue some of their investors and show them how it can really be done. You know, um, a lot of the way we get over those hurdles is allow them to talk to some of our current investors and just say, "Hey, look, don't take it from me because if you heard it from Madoff." 
I understand he was pretty freaking convincing. I bet. I'm pretty freaking convincing too. But talk to investor A, B, or C and let them tell you what their track records track records have been like with us for the last eight years. Yeah. And they can tell you that this is above board. Um, but that's a that's a thing. That's for sure a thing. We've definitely gotten some questions about it. I don't nobody has communicated to us they haven't invested with us because of their fears stemming from that, but there are reasonable fears. There's some bad people out there. Yeah. Uh, we're not, we aren't them, but I get being concerned about that. But you also, um, I mean, you've got, so you've got a fund administrator in place as well, which mm-hmm. I would imagine would allow people some visibility and yep, some things. Totally. Yep. Um, yep. And, they, and they're doing, they're a third party administrator. And so yeah. this is, this is all they do is administer funds. And yep. so they're looking over our shoulder at, at every turn and guiding you in the right direction as right. well. Right. And we're borrowing money from, Banks like BB and T and Pinnacle yeah. and yeah. and they're they've got visibility and all this stuff and so there's just you know there's just lots of checks and balances I think that are out there that are validating what we're doing yeah. or that you could fact check it if you wanted to yeah. wouldn't be hard I guess the lending aspect the fact that you're dealing with the banks on a consistent basis yeah. to finance a new deal would be your cleanest see through as to what y'all are actually and doing. they require annual reports from us and yeah. annual updates and so they're they're constantly looking, yeah. you know, um, so I, if I were an investor, that would make me feel more comfortable. So you almost get, um, you almost get a, um, a really healthy, clean due diligence from a bank as the investor, right? Cause the bank's going right. to be doing all the work. Oh yeah. Well, not all, but yeah, they, yeah. they do a lot of work. It doesn't necessarily help us, yeah. but they do a lot of work and we've got a good partnership with our banks and, um, they can be aggravating to deal with sometimes, but that's their job. I mean, yeah. you know, they, they need to poke holes in things. It's their job to, to blow deals up. And so the deals that don't get blown up are worthy. Yeah. Um, and so we know how to, how to manage that process. So you bought property in North Carolina, South Carolina, and you're under contract or you're heading towards that direction with one in Florida. Correct. Where won't you go? Um, that's a good question. Um, so it depends on the property type, I would say. Um, I, and the property size. I mean, the, the property in Jacksonville we're buying is our first venture outside of the Carolinas. Um, and we feel comfortable with that venture because it's so similar to a property we already own in Charlotte and there's staff in place and it's a one hour plane flight. I mean, it's pretty easy for us to get there. Um, but we just understand that property really well. In fact, some of the tenants are the same there and here. Okay. Um, and so we've learned a lot of lessons here at Charlotte East over the last three years that we will be applying to Midtown Center in Jacksonville. Um, I would say that, that we probably would stick in the Southeast. I mean, we've had a few things here or there to look at in other places, but we, we don't have to. I mean... I, I can't think of a better real estate market where you can still find good value and there's still a lot of upside than the Carolinas. I mean, it is, this is a great place to live and do business. And I think that we're seeing that in all kinds of corporate relocations, both to Charlotte and to Raleigh. Um, but we like it here. We have enough deals to do here. We don't have to go to Kansas city or whatever. Yeah. Um, I've made the argument for the last year or so that if you buy real estate between um, between Atlanta and Raleigh over the course of the next couple of years and hold it for 30, um, you're probably really challenged not to be successful. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, it's a, it's a great part of the country. And I mean, people are flooding here. Yeah. I mean, I went to the 
the the Panthers Bills game the other night, and there were more Bills fans I think there than Panthers fans because so many people from Buffalo moved to Charlotte. Yeah. So. Well, I asked somebody why one time, and they said, "Do I even have to answer?" It? So, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. a fair enough question, right? right? That's yeah. exactly right. Uh, or fair enough answer. Uh, where does the fun go from here, right? I mean, you start so. Um, you started the process of raising the fund in early 2019. You'll close it at some point in time over the course of the next six weeks, and then you'll open it up. Mm-hmm. What does it become? So um, our hope is that it's a vehicle that creates generational wealth. I mean, yeah. that's what we want for our own families. Um, we think a lot. I mean, I, I really don't want to overstate this, but we think a lot about what, what Berkshire Hathaway has done, what Warren Buffett's done. And, and he's obviously, they are long-term holders. Yep. They buy, they hold, they reinvest, um, and we really like that model. And so I think that that's what we—that's how we think about it. Is that over time we'll continue to to raise money and um, continue to to buy deals, aggregate assets together, bring in great staff to help us manage all that. Um, but there's a number of places this could go. I mean, we're set up like a hedge fund, and so um, we could get into any number of opportunities, whether that be providing debt, it could be buying debt. I mean, there's lots of things we could do that's not just buying physical real estate assets, but the time's got to be right. Right now, the time is right to buy these assets we're buying because they're good deals. Yeah. Um, from, um, I mean, that's a completely, that's a different, um, it's a different world. Um, so real quick, I have to ask, are you Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger? <laughs> um, are, you, are you practical or quirky? Yeah. Which I, one of you is who? I don't know. I don't. Um, that's a good question. I have to think about that. Um, I would say I, we're we're not really either of them. I mean, you can't compare yourself to Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. I mean, they're that's they're, the right answer. They're in a category yeah. all their own for yeah. sure. Um, but Andy and I have definitely learned over these eight years of working together. And the first few years were bumpy trying to figure out what our skills were, but we know who should be doing what and who's, what are, where we're best suited, what, what seat on the bus we should be sitting on. And we've, we've worked hard to figure that out. And, um, we tripped over each other a lot in the beginning, but now I think we've learned how to use our skills together to crush it basically. What, um, but so it's a different, You'd keep it under one fund structure no matter what, though, right? Mm-hmm. You don't see a world where there's um, it's Nova Capital. Right. Um, it's not Nova Capital A, Nova Capital B, Nova Capital C. Right. If you're good at allocating capital and there's a there's a debt deal that you can go in and fund or something else or purchase or whatever it ends up being, um, you'd keep it underneath that as good allocators of capital. That's right. Yeah, I mean, our... our what we tell everybody is that everything we do from here on out, it's all in the fund. Yeah. And so we've had several investors say, well, we don't, we don't want to invest in a fund. We want to invest in individual deals. We want to be able to analyze this deal and determine if I want to do that deal. And we're like, sorry, that's not an option. Yeah. You know, it's, it's either in the fund or not in the fund. And it's the same for us. I mean, if we found some funky opportunity that Andy and I could do personally, we're going to do it in the fund. I mean, yeah. this is, this is it. Um, so on that note, with the fund, there's no kind of co-investing alongside of it, right? The fund does it all by itself. Right. Currently, that's right. I mean, yeah. who knows what could happen in the future? I'll, I wouldn't say never. Yeah. Certainly, it's possible. But um, our goal is that every every deal that we do, every LLC for every piece of property, uh, the fund is the is the investor. 
Do you think you've been aided by the fact that Charlotte's such a real estate town? Um, or am I misinterpreting that? Um, it just seems like everybody loves real estate in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think the aspect <clears throat> of raising money, and I know we talked before this, I know raising money for any type of fund isn't easy, but do you think in any way, shape, or form, the fact that people seem to understand real estate here has been a tailwind? Um, um, or is what y'all are doing so different that you're having to talk through so many hoops that it doesn't I mean, there's, there's definitely a pretty steep learning curve for most people. I mean, getting their arms around investing in a piece of real estate is very different than getting their arms around investing in a fund. Um, it's, it's a pretty steep learning curve. Fortunately, uh, most of our existing investors, A, they trust us. Um, and so if they don't understand, they're like, well, whatever, we don't really care. Just keep sending us checks. Yeah. Um, or they really dig in the weeds and they really get into it deep. And, um, and so most of our portfolio of investors in the fund are either past investors or references from past investors. So, um, I mean, I, I, I don't know if the Charlotte obsession with real estate helps us or hurts us. Um, there's a lot of options out there for investing in real estate in yeah. Charlotte, um, but so yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think that helps us a ton, honestly. I and mean, in Raleigh's the same way. Is Raleigh's it? real estate market is is unbelievably hot, and um, like everybody you meet in Raleigh's in real estate on some level or another. Really? Um, just like here, everybody's in banking. But I feel like if you, if they're not in banking, they're in real estate in Charlotte. Um, so yeah, I don't know that that's helped us a ton. What's been the hardest part over the last eight years? Um. Besides the first deal, mm-hmm. was this always the hardest? Yeah, that was definitely the hardest. Um, I think the hardest, I don't know, I, I would say the hardest part is um, it, it's difficult when you're dealing with businesses that are run by people to enforce rules that have consequences. And so kind of our MO when we operate a property is um, whatever the lease says is what has to happen. And inevitably, when we close a property, tenants are testing you to see what they're going to be able to get out of you. And they often say, well, the last landlord didn't do that. And it's really hard sometimes to just dig your heels in the sand and say, I'm sorry, this is a business. This isn't personal, but you haven't paid your rent in two months and therefore we have to evict you. Or, um, you know, you're not allowed to do that thing that you just did. So therefore we have to impose some penalty on you. Um, but we, we, we treat our tenants as if they're, they're borrowers from us. Um, and so we hold them to a pretty high standard. Um, we operate based on what their leases say, what the legal documents say. And that's kind of it. There's not a whole lot of pleasantry. And I'm a very personable kind of person. I like, to, I like to engage with the tenants and get into their business. But I've had to learn over time that it's just better for me to keep kind of my arm's length because it's... It's business, and it's it gets messy sometimes yeah. um, when people don't when they fall in hard times or the founder of a company gets sick and they can't pay their rent. Like it's just difficult. But we have investors we have to answer to, and um, that's really our first priority is making sure that our investors are taken care of. So, kind of wrapping up here, getting towards the end of um, podcast interview, um, I'm also of the opinion that as Charlotte continues to grow. 
more funds, not necessarily like yours, will pop <coughs> up, right? But uh, venture capital funds and um, other things will pop up that give people the opportunity to invest through Charlotte, so mm-hmm. to speak. Totally. Um, what advice do you have for those that are thinking about making that leap and saying, you know, we want to give folks the opportunity to participate as well? Yeah. Um, yeah, what I would say is uh, people love to talk about things at cocktail parties. And so if you can give an investor some kind of story they can spit back out to their wife or their buddies on the golf course or at the gym or whatever, that's really valuable. They want to, I don't know this bragging, but kind of brag about, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm invested in this new thing in Charlotte and we own this, this, and this, you know, you can, you can go to this shopping center that we own or um, whatever. Um, but if it's some kind of venture fund, I mean, I think the same thing, you know, to be able to say, hey, I just invested in this fund and they, they own this business and this business and they just invested in that one. Like people, people want a good story. They want to be able to hear a good story and receive it and be part of it, but they also want to tell other people about it. Yeah. And so that, that's what I would say is I think the, one of the most powerful things is giving people something bigger than themselves to be part of. And, um, and I think we've done that with some of the deals we've done. They're some pretty crazy stories. Yeah. It sounds like it. Um, was it, um, go back to kind of the beginning and we'll wrap up here. Was it, was it difficult to tell your, I mean, it's your dad, right? Mm-hmm. Dad's, was it difficult to say, dad, I'm going to go do my own thing? Yeah. Oh, for sure. It was brutal. Yeah. I mean, I'd worked for him for 11 years I and mean, that's a long time to work in a place. Yeah. And, um, much less for your parents, as much less for your family. And so it was super hard. I mean, I ran a lot of parts of his business and, um, and my uncle was his business partner. And so that was, that had some complications sometimes because they were 50, 50 partners. And, um, but yeah, it was super hard it was a hard conversation. And, um, I, I think it's fair for me to say, I think my dad's super proud of me for yeah. what I've done, you know, and I think it's cool that I don't do what he does, that he's predominantly been a developer and a broker and we've predominantly been an acquirer and that's different. Um, He's invested in our fund, and so I feel like that's a huge vote of confidence. Um, but yeah, it was super hard. It was a that was a tough leap to make, and um, working for family, I was always 100% commission. Um, but there was always a sense of a safety net that was there, and uh, even even despite it was 100% commission. But when the recession hit, uh, we just felt like ah, it may not be what we think. We better. I need to go figure something different out. And so it was mostly necessity. Yeah. Um, and I think my dad understood that. Yeah. Um, and I think he always knew I wanted to run my own company. I mean, I wanted to buy his business, but he wasn't done yet. Yeah. He still isn't done. He's 74 he years yet. old. He's still not done yet. Yeah. He's still crushing it. Um, so, you know, I wanted to be an owner. I didn't want to be an operator. Yeah. And so um, that was the biggest thing. But I think he knew that from the beginning that I wanted to be an owner and that, I want to do my own deals and, um, and then being able to be partners with, I mean, one of my best and oldest friends is, it's just a great gift and it's a lot of fun. What, um, is that you then? Are you a 74 still crushing it? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I love working. I love coming to work every day. Um, people tease me cause like I love Mondays because Monday is like, there's a whole new set of things we get to do today this yeah. week. Um, 
So I love it. I love the process of the deal. I mean, I, I love leasing little spaces. I don't do much of that anymore, but I love it. I yeah. love little wins. I love raising money. I was talking to somebody. I mean, our minimum investment in our big fund is, is half a million dollars, but um, I love it when somebody calls and says, hey, can I put in 50? Come on. You know, yeah. I guess I just love the wins, you know? So, um, yeah, I think it's great. I love the people that work with us. And um Andy and I spend a lot of time, my wife will tease me that we spend as much time laughing on the phone as we do talking about business, but that's just part of what makes it fun. Yeah. So we'll keep on winning. Thanks. We will. Yeah. So, um, and thanks for carving out some time for us. I appreciate it. For sure. So have a good one. Yeah, man. You too. William Bissett is an investment advisor representative with Seacrest Blakey and Associates, a registered investment advisor. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Seacrest Blakey and Associates. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Seacrest Blakey and Associates does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interests may be offered only to persons who qualify as accredited investors under the Securities Act and a qualified purchaser as defined in Section 2A, Paragraph 51, Line A, under the Company Act or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interests. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.